in an affirmation of what you have done in our hearts and our lives in recognition that you are Lord over all. And we await your return. We await you coming back to make all things new, to wipe every tear from our eye that pain and suffering and death will be no more and, and sin will be no more. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Work in our hearts until the day that you return. Holy Spirit, stir in us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of Christ this morning. Speak through Seth in power and in might and change us, I pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Glad you guys are here this morning. We're going to be back in Luke chapter 9 today. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there that you might follow along. If you have uh, version, we have a live event out there. The notes will be there. The quotes will be there. Scripture references will be there. Uh, you'll be able to follow along there. And then also save it and look at it later just to continue to be encouraged by it, challenged by it, and, uh, and, and truly, I think, called to, uh, called to what Christ has called us to by it. So to this point in Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> excuse me, to this point in Luke chapter 9, we have really seen Jesus' followers being engaged in his mission. Like he is really calling them in to be a part of what he's doing. For example, every Christian has, that, that has been called to come to Jesus has been sent by Jesus to call others to come to Jesus. We saw that the first week that we studied in Luke chapter 9. The, this is the, the heartbeat of what Jesus has called every one of his, every one of his followers into, to the sent life, this going life, this life of, of, uh, of, of being a part of his mission to reach others. This isn't for just a few. This isn't just for the 12. This is ultimately something that he spoke specifically to them, but then passed on through them to every one of us. This, this, this sent life belongs to every believer. And the second thing we saw was that every Christian is called to serve in order that Jesus' Jesus's sufficiency is shown to be the answer to our dependency. We are all needy, every last one of us. None of us is self-sufficient in and of ourselves. We are a needy People, and I think that's evident in the world we live in as, as there's so many people clamoring and striving after so many answers, seeking to fix so many problems, but we are incapable of bringing true change. We are unable to, to live in control, <clears throat> but Jesus can. Jesus has, Jesus does. Everywhere Jesus went was better for him having been there, and so he calls us into this service to serve others, and now because of what he's done and because of who he is, Every place that we go should be better for it as we serve in the way that Christ served. And today, as we move onward, as we move forward in chapter 9, we're going to see this next component of the sent life is one we don't necessarily like to deal with. In fact, I think ultimately, most of the time, we seek to try to just ignore it, kind of push it aside, this idea of suffering for the cause of Christ, this, this sent life that we've been given to live in, demands that we suffer. Every Christian that would follow Jesus into victory must be first willing to suffer the same as Jesus at the cross. That's the main point. I'm going to say it several times today. I hope that when you leave, that's what you remember. Uh, next to the scripture, of course. And I, the scripture first, yes, please, more than my words, but to summarize, to give you one point, to hang your hat on, one nail in the wall to, to hang your hat on. This is it. Every Christian that would follow Jesus into victory, must first be willing to suffer the same as Jesus at the cross. Just as we have been 
sent by Jesus like Jesus. We have been sent by Jesus. Just as we have been called to serve like Jesus, we are called to suffer like Jesus. And it becomes apparent, extremely apparent in these scripture, uh, the scripture today. So read with me. We'll begin in verse 18 of chapter 9. It happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him and he asked them, Who the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, Christ, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised. So Luke lets us know there's a break in the flow here. This is not immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. This didn't happen immediately, like the the moment that he fed the 5,000 and he turns around and prays by himself, right? That's not what is going on. There's a break in the timeline. We don't know uh, how much time has passed, but but if you go to Mark, there's several things that happen between the feeding of the 5,000 and this moment where Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. So we get this idea that here he is. He, he, he doesn't tell us how much time, but, he, but he's in, instead of logging this uh, chronologically, he's following this logically. We're actually going to see this a little more in, in a couple of weeks when we come back and deal with this passage more fully for it being a testimony of, of who Jesus Christ is, answering the question that Herod asked in the verses that preceded, who is this Jesus? Like, who is he? We're not going to get to deal with all of this today, but, but, but I want you to see that Luke is, is bringing us to this point for a very specific reason. He's, he's showing us this, not just so that we can see Jesus, Yes, so we can see Jesus, but also so that we can see this life we've been called to live, this life we've been called into, this sent life that we've been given. So Luke says, hey, he was praying by himself. Doesn't mean he was alone. Obviously, the disciples are there. This just isn't a prayer meeting. Like He's not leading a prayer meeting and everybody gathered together and praying. The disciples are doing whatever it is they do, probably bickering among themselves, talking about politics, talking about who who won the game, talking about, um, you know, what is it that disciples talk about? My kid's funnier than yours. No, no, really, seriously, you ought to see what my kid did. They're probably sitting and scrolling through their Facebook feeds, looking at what they're, what's going on. <laughs> and Jesus is praying. It's striking to me that he's praying by himself, surrounded by his disciples. But he's praying. And then he finishes praying and he asks a couple of questions. Who do the people say that I am? And they're like, oh, well, well hey, let me... Put my phone down. Let me, let's quit bickering. Let's, let's get serious for a minute. So here's the Sunday service, right? So it's time to go to church. So they get serious and they begin to talk about what's going on. And, <clears throat> and Jesus is like, who, who, who do people say I am? Who do the crowds that follow say I am? And his answer, their answer to Jesus sounded a lot like what Herod was hearing when he asked the question, who is Jesus? Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet of old that's been raised from the dead. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that they could grasp at these crazy straws. I mean, you just consider the miracle that would have had it taken place for John the Baptist and Jesus, who were at the same place at the same time, in, in the same moments, in the same set of circumstances, to be the same person. I mean, that's a stretch, right? They could comprehend that. They could imagine that. But they couldn't grasp the truth. They couldn't fathom 
the truth. Oh, you're a prophet. You're, you're, you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. Certainly they understood that he was supernatural. Certainly they understood that he was a, a, a special person in the plan of God. But they couldn't fathom the truth. And so Jesus asked a second question. Who do you say that I am? You see, it gets real personal now because now it's not talking about what other people say, what other people believe. What do you believe? And Peter, being kind of the spokesman for the, for the 12, the spokesman for the disciples, says, you are the Christ of God. Now, again, we don't get to deal with all that's being said here. We don't get to deal with the depths of this statement today. We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. But, but, but here in this, in this statement, it's a confession of faith. It is an understanding. Certainly they had, this, they, 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 they had this intimate knowledge that the crowds didn't have. They were closer to Jesus than anyone else. Certainly they had a greater knowledge of his power. Certainly they had a greater knowledge of his teaching because they didn't hear him once in a while. They heard him day in and day out. I mean, regardless, in Matthew's account, we find, we're told that that Peter understood this, that the disciples understood this, not because they were just smarter folks, not just because they were better, uh, better people, but because God had revealed it to them. They had this supernatural knowledge that Jesus was more than anyone else thought he was. He was the one anointed by God to come and do God's mission on this earth. And you might think at this moment that Jesus would be a bit celebratory. I mean, like he might be clapping his hands, patting them on the back, looking, taking this opportunity to say, hey, you guys finally got it. I mean, remember, they're not tested so well to this point. The disciples haven't fared too well in, their, in, in, in exercising faith to this point. When the storm was raging and they were in the boat, they were afraid that they were going to die if they were with Jesus. After having gone and worked miracles, that, 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 that casting out demons and healing the sick, they come back and they can't, they can't imagine that they could feed the multitude. And so when challenged by Jesus to, to feed these 5,000 people, they fail. But in this moment, they got it right. You might think that Jesus would be like just gleaming. You know how teachers, if you've, ever, if you've ever taught anyone, like even your kids, if you've ever taught someone and they get it, the light bulb comes on, there's this moment that like you feel really good about what's just happened. But Jesus doesn't celebrate. He doesn't pat them on the back. He doesn't send them out and say, hey, make sure you tell everybody what's going on. You finally figured it out. Now you're ready to go. Instead, he commands them to be silent, to not say a word. And then he commands and teaches them to just to, to, to wait. And the reason is because he's got more work to do. There's more things that they don't yet understand. What it meant for him to be the Christ in their mind in this moment, there's really no telling. You see, we're fortunate. When we hear this, when we hear that Jesus is the Christ, we have 2,000 years of Christian teaching. We have scriptures that have, have been written and, and solidified. We have the mission of God being completed in Christ on the cross and his resurrection. We have that. 
And so for us, it's really easy just to say, oh, well, hey, I know what it means, and, and, and then assume that they knew what it meant. Could have been very possible that they thought that Christ was going to be the king of an earthly kingdom. In fact, it seems that they still thought this in the book of Acts. When you read Luke's second volume and Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, they're still having discussions about whether Jesus is going to establish the kingdom then. Like they still even didn't get it fully then. These are the 12. It's beautiful to me because in some way that these men that were so imperfect and so, so, uh, so small in their understanding and so incomplete in and of themselves were used mightily of God. You know what hope that is for me? <laughs> and probably I would assume you so Jesus says, don't tell anybody, don't, don't, don't be going around and saying anything because I've got to suffer and I've got to be raised. I've got to suffer and die and I've got to be raised from the dead. He predicts his death and his resurrection. And it, it would seem, based on the broader context, that they still don't get it. They still don't understand it. They, they hear it and they don't know what to do with it. But what Jesus shows us here in this point, in, in this statement, in part, what he shows us here is that his death and his resurrection were always part of the plan. This wasn't going to be, this wasn't going to happen because somehow God lost control of the situation. This wasn't going to happen because Jesus wasn't powerful enough to evade or escape. It wasn't going to happen because Jesus couldn't do something else. It was going to happen because Jesus had come for this very purpose. And he's even proclaiming it months before it ever even had an opportunity to happen. I have got to suffer at the hands of men. I have got to die. And then on the third day, I have got to be raised. This is important for us to see. Jesus sets the pattern here. He's the one that determines the pattern, the path in which we are, we, we are to follow just like we have been sent like Jesus was sent. Just like we have been called to serve like Jesus was called to serve. He sets a pattern of suffering. Before there is victory, there is always suffering. That is the reality that we live in in this world. There is no path of victory that doesn't include a path through suffering. This is just the truth. This is what he demonstrates. This is what he shows us. Augustine, I appreciate his perspective. He was a theologian and pastor that lived in the late 300s and early 400s. He writes, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. Never one. One lived without sin, but never one lived without suffering. There is no son of God that can claim to be a son of God without first suffering. Jesus would come as the Christ. He would work powerful miracles. He would teach truth with authority that was unparalleled in his day. He would live and has been since. He would live a sinless life. But for our sake, as part of God's plan for the Christ to redeem people from sin and restore peace between God and man, Jesus would step into suffering. He would willfully deny himself 
willfully face a cross, willfully die, that we might live. Because he didn't stay dead, but he lives. Listen, as we, as we deal with this, I, I, want you, I want you to see this. I want, in this moment, I want you to understand this. God does not take our suffering lightly. This is not just something so he can get kicks, like, oh, I'm going to call them to suffer, and I'm going to make them pay. But he was so grieved by sin that he suffered for us. He didn't, just, he didn't just step into the suffering of man and deal with the consequences of sin in a generic fashion, with purpose and intention, with a goal, with a, with a specific reason for it. He put on flesh, he dwelt among us, he humbled himself as a servant. And he faced death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. See, God does not take our suffering lightly. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He is not hardened to it. He is not discompassionate to it. He is moved by it. And he actually suffers for us. But if we're going to enjoy the victory that Jesus enjoyed we are going to have to join Jesus in the suffering that he endured. Every Christian that would follow Jesus into victory must first be willing to suffer the same as Jesus at the cross. It would be great, I think, if, in our minds if, if, if this passage just kind of stopped here, right? Like, like Jesus says, I've got to go do this. I've got to take this, this, this thing on. And... I think that we would feel that way, and, and, and I think that that's a common, common perspective in the church today. I mean, I mean, we talk about the rapture, and if you hold to the view of the rapture that's coming before the tribulation and all that, and you've got this dispensational pre-trib view of all that stuff, I, I don't mean to tell you you're wrong, but I don't agree with you. But I don't mean to tell you you're, you're wrong. But there's such an escapist mentality there. Jesus didn't come to remove our suffering immediately. He came to call us into it and promise that there would be an end of it. If we're going to enjoy his victory, we must be willing to suffer like he did at the cross. And I think it would be great if the passage doesn't continue, if this was just it. But it does go on. In fact, it goes on and he tells us not just, to, not just that he's going to suffer, but we need to plan for it ourselves to be expectant of the suffering that's coming. J.C. Ryle writes, The servant of Christ must never be surprised if he has to drink of the same cup with his Lord. We should be surprised if we aren't suffering. We should be more, more, more uh, uh, astonished if there weren't difficulty uh, uh, attached to following Christ. Because in the same way that Jesus was sent, in the same way that Jesus served, and in the same way Jesus suffers, we are called to go, we are called to serve, and we are called to suffer. Let me just show you. Pick it up in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There's this moment coming where Jesus is returning. There's this moment coming when all suffering and death and pain is put away. This moment of glory where Jesus rides back in a horse, or or rides back on a horse, a, a victorious warrior, a victorious king. There's this moment coming which we have to look forward to, but that moment isn't now. That moment hasn't arrived. It's time we quit living like it has or trying to pretend that it has. We have been sent. Are we living sent? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You see, suffering wasn't just for Jesus. Like Jesus suffered, we've been called to suffer. And it'd be great, another, oh man, it would be awesome if we could say, well, hey, he's just talking to the twelve. Like, it's just theirs, you know? I mean, we're supposed to have it made. We live the American dream, for crying out loud. God finally got a a nation right. He finally got a government right. And now we can live the American dream and have all we wanted. And enjoy our Christianity, too. If anyone. It's not the 12. That's not a select few. If anyone would come after me, if anyone is going to be a Christian, if anyone is going to to connect themselves to Christ, to identify themselves in Christ, if anyone, anybody that came before, anybody that lived in that day, and if anybody would come after him now, let him. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Before we dive into these, I, I, I just want you to say, I want you to hear me say this. This is not how we work out our, or work for, I'm sorry, this is not how we work for our salvation. This isn't a legalistic demand that you follow. The context is that Jesus has been confessed by Peter and the twelve. Like They have already confessed it. They are already saying they believe it. So this isn't the message that we bring to those who are outside the church. This is the message that every Christian needs to understand. And after a person has come to faith, after a person understands that this is an expression of faith, what every new Christian needs to understand. This isn't how how non-Christians should be acting so that they deserve heaven. This isn't how non-Christians, so if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, denying yourself, taking up your cross and, and following him, that don't mean nothing if you don't believe that he is the one that come from Christ, that he is the one that's sent by God to perform his mission, to make it a reality. So as I speak to you, I would just plead with you to believe in the Christ. 
But if you're a believer, even a believer as, as recent as a moment ago, this is the expression of our faith. See, faith isn't just an intellectual knowledge that says that I agree with this or I think it's right. It's, it's a belief that's so intrinsic to who we are, that's so deeply rooted in who we are and what we think that it directs our actions. A person's faith is actually, actually revealed in whether they would be willing to do this or not, as Jesus demonstrates throughout the, the entire passage. What Jesus teaches us, if we believe that he is the Christ from God, we will show this in our life in three ways. We will deny self. The word used infers more than just some simple denial of certain things, like, ah, you know, I'm not going to have ice cream today. I'm going to fast at lunch this week. So it's, a much, it's much deeper, much bigger. It's more than a 40-day fast from something at Lent. It's more than, it's more than just denying yourself the, the comfort, the creature comforts of the American life. It goes further into to who we are, into the plans that we have, the agendas that we set, the, the kingdoms we seek to build. Joel Green in the New International Commentary goes more than just, it, he, he deals with it in, in the sense that it's more than just agendas, more than just, more than just selfish gain. He brings it into the idea of our identity. He says to design oneself was to set aside the relationships, the extended family of origin, and inner circle of friends by which one made up one's identity. By radical self-denial then is meant openness to constructing a wholly new identity not based on ethnic origins or relationships of mutual obligation but in the new community that is centered on God and resolutely faithful to Jesus' message. This is being a whole new person, a denial of who I was, a putting off of the old flesh and stepping into the new. This is what we, ha- we saw happen in Acts chapter 2. If you have been here long, you have heard me recite this passage or read this passage, speak about this passage. Peter had preached the gospel in power. 3,000 people came to believe and immediately their life changed. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayers, and to the fellowship. They committed themselves to a whole new group of people and a whole new style of living. They believed it so much that instead of hoarding their own goods and trying to live the the Israelite dream, I don't know if they had an Israelite dream, but but hoarding their goods themselves and making a way for themselves in the world, they were so concerned with one another, not the one another's outside the church, but the one another's that were in the fellowship, they were so concerned with one another that they, they began to sell their stuff and give to each other as any had need. They became very committed to the body of Christ as opposed to the service of self. They were already a communal people. This is a very communal culture that they lived in, but they became uh, committed to a whole new people, a whole new culture within that culture. This is a whole new person. So why do we continue, as brothers and sisters, why do we continue seeking to be the old people we were? Why do we just try to put on Christ on top of the old man? We try to be Christians and still pursue our own dreams. We try to be Christians and still live this simple, easy life. 
We try to be Christians and deny the, 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 deny the fact that we've been called to something more and, and, and really just say, well, you know, hey, I can get by with this this little bit. See, tonight, to deny oneself is to no longer view or define ourselves in the, ter- in the terms that start from our perspective. They start from God's. This doesn't necessarily mean that there's a change of vocation. Now, in my case, it's, it was a change of vocation. I, I mean, I was tempted to buy out the, the guy that I used to work for. He gave me this offer. He's like, oh, you can work for me, and I'll, I'll groom you for about two years. I was, I, was, I was tempted by the dollar. I mean, I had just dollar signs popping in my eyes. I mean, I saw this guy. He had like 10 cars. And I, I don't remember. He had a couple of airplanes, and, and I was even justifying it in my head. I could do all this mission work. When really I just wanted the money that would buy security and comfort. It doesn't necessitate a a change of vocation. In fact, most of us are not called to change vocation. We're just called to change the reason we go and do the job we do. So what is it that you do? When you wake up tomorrow morning, when your alarm clock goes off and you step into the world, what have you gone out to do? And why are you going to do it? Are you seeking to pad a bank account? Are you seeking to build some security for retirement? Because one day I'll get to serving Jesus when I finally get to that place where I have time and energy. And Why are you doing what you do? See, this doesn't necessitate that we, that we divest ourselves of, of, of all wealth and we live as paupers in this world. In fact, I would encourage you to do it differently, to think of it differently. You go out, work hard, make lots of money, and then why? What, consider what you do with that money. What do you do with your wealth and your abundance? Believe me, whether you like to think of it this way or not, in the scope of the world, in, the, in, in, in relation to the world, there's not a poor person in this room. What are you doing with your abundance? Who are you serving with your Abundance. What purpose are you using your abundance for? Jesus says you deny that self that uses it for yourself. To deny oneself is not to walk around all gloomy and sad, to no longer find joy in life. Not be able to laugh at something that is funny, but rather it's to be totally redefined and, and so that our source of joy and those things that bring laughter are no longer things that dishonor God. Man, I'm the first to admit I laugh at some things that are pretty inappropriate. Maybe I'm not the first to admit it, but I'm, I'm admitting it. How? Why? Why would we? How can we find joy in things that disgust God and things that God suffered because of? How can we find joy in things that God died for? We're called to deny this part of ourselves, to not live from it, in a sense to kill it, to push it away, to put it off. He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. 
The disciples, they didn't fully realize what Jesus was saying, and he, they didn't really fully realize that Jesus was going to be crucified. But you can be certain they understood what Jesus was saying when he said it. Crucifixion was so, so prominent then, it was so, so normative then, that likely there was not a man sitting there listening to Jesus teach that hadn't seen someone carrying a crossbeam to his death. One of, one of the commentators I read from, uh, Leon Morris, in the Tyndale New Testament commentary writes, when a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He'd not be back. Taking up the cross meant the utmost in self-denial. So Jesus is calling us to be prepared every day to die if necessary, to be so committed to his way that this life, that this life we live is sacrificial, that this life we live is, is not the one we live for. We have to make some distinction here. You have to see this. We have been called to suffer, but we have not been called to suffer just simply the way the world suffers. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. This is not suffering in a general sense of suffering. This is not just having your house torn down by a tornado or, or being burned up by a fire or just facing difficulty because the life here is difficult. This is not suffering caused by our own stupid choices and dealing with the consequences of our stupid decisions. I got plenty of those. Sit down and talk to me sometime. I'll tell you the consequences I've dealt with because of my stupid choices. That's not the kind of suffering that he's calling us to. This is not suffering caused by stupid and sinful choices of other people. Because really the truth is you're not the only one making stupid and sinful choices. The people sitting around you are making stupid and sinful choices too. And the reality is if you are living life together with them, you're going to reap some of that consequence alongside them. And don't misunderstand, God uses every bit of that suffering. Every bit of that suffering. You know, no believer suffers in vain today. But this is not the suffering that Jesus is calling us to pick up and take up on our own, willfully step into. This cross, this, this, this suffering that he calls us into is particular. It's purposeful. It's intentional. It is stepping into the mission that God gave Christ and Christ has called us to come alongside and, and step into with him. Another quote from, from Norville Gedlinheis. He writes, he who desires to become his disciple, Jesus' disciple, and servant will every day have to be willing to put his own interests and wishes into the background and to accept voluntarily and wholeheartedly the sacrifice and suffering that will have to be endured in his service. The cross is not the ordinary human troubles and sorrows such as disappointments, disease, death, poverty, and the like, but the things which have, have to be suffered, endured, and lost in the service of Christ. Don't be misled. Don't be, dis, don't, don't, don't be deceived. Just because life is difficult doesn't mean you're suffering for Christ. You have been called, brothers and sisters, we have been called to deny ourselves and take up our cross. The things which have, been, have to be suffered, endured, and lost in the service of Christ by tuperation. I had to look that up because I didn't know what that meant. It means to be revived, to be spoken ill of, to, to receive, uh, like being cussed out. Being cussed out because of Jesus. Vituperation, persecution, self-sacrifice, suffering even unto death as a result of the true faith in and obedience to him. 
The suffering that Jesus is calling us to is particular for the Christian life. The cross he calls us to carry daily is to step in and join him in the work of redemption from sin and restoration of peace with God. Don't misunderstand. You and I are not the savior of anyone. We do not replace Christ. We point attention to Christ. Whatever comes, whatever might happen, whatever bad could come, whatever the cost, whatever it means for us, we step in and we proclaim Christ. Just like it happened in in, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter steps out, regardless of what happened, when Jesus finally gives him permission, when Jesus finally says, now go and be my witness, what do we do? We now preach the gospel. We proclaim the Christ that came and died on our behalf, in our place, for our sin. And so Peter, giving, having been given the permission and given the power, he steps out and he preaches Christ. And he says, this Christ you crucified, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Christ. This Jesus This Jesus who was killed has been raised. And this Jesus who died in our place and for our sin has sent us. Expectant, prepared, ready to suffer. Not because he's against us. Not because he just wants to get even with us. But whether you believe it or not, whether you recognize it or not, because it is good for us. To endure the cross, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship writes, to endure the cross is not a tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. When it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. It is not the sort of suffering which is inseparable from this immortal or this mortal life, but the suffering which is an essential part of the specifically Christian life. So we deny ourselves, we pick up our cross daily, and we follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, in a sense, is to accompany him, to be with him, to live life with him, to, to, to walk behind him, that he is the master, that he is the teacher, that he is the leader, and we are submissive to him, that we are behind him, that we are under him. This is what it is to follow him, to, to live in ultimate and complete obedience Being a Christian does not mean going to church on a Sunday, Philip Ryken writes. Being a Christian does not mean going to church on a Sunday, serving in a ministry, or going to a small group Bible study once a week. Yes, that's part of being a Christian. That's part of what happens when we deny ourselves, put on this new life, and, 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 and follow Christ. But there's more. More. Being a Christian does not mean going to church on Sunday, serving in a ministry, or going to a small group Bible study once a week, and then living for ourselves the rest of the time. It means laying ourselves on the altar of daily obedience. To follow Jesus is to always live in submission to him. This doesn't change with our scenery or our circumstance. The truth is, I don't know every detail that you face today. Some of you, I know, I know some of the things that are going on in your life, but I, I don't know everyone intimately. But I do know this. 
every one of us, in whatever circumstance we face, in whatever situation we, we, face, we see ourselves in, we're called to be following Christ, submissive to Christ, behind Christ, being taught by Christ, being lorded over, being commanded under his authority. And it doesn't change based on the particular group of people we're hanging out with. You, you, you know the people that, that today, they're, that, man, they're, their language is clean, they're, they're, they, they got on their Sunday go to best, they put on their Sunday go to church face, and then they step out into the world. And they don't look much different than the world. Certain, probably not talking to anybody in here, but but following Christ, following Christ the way we're called to follow Christ is not something that happens once a week or twice a week. It's every day. This means that Sunday's events may look different than Monday through Saturday, but the purpose we live for isn't. Every day for Jesus' fame, every day that Jesus might be more glorified, every day that Jesus might be realized as Savior of the world. This means that whether we are with church folks or unchurched folks, we're still walking behind and with Jesus. He's always there. And we're always practicing his presence, always remembering that he is with us. If we're going to be God's people that believe that Jesus is the Christ, we are going to enjoy and we are going to enjoy his victory. We must be prepared today to join him in his suffering. Denial of self, taking up our cross and following him. Again, not because it's bad for us, because it's good. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. It's a gift to you. That's a gift I don't want to take. I I don't want that one. He's gifted you to believe and he's gifted you to suffer for his sake. This is good for us. Every Christian that would follow Jesus into victory must first be willing to suffer the same as Jesus at the cross. And he closes with this set of, 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 of warnings and promises. And, 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 and he calls people to see just how serious this is. To gain life, we must lose life for Jesus. Now you can go around trying to protect yourself and trying to secure yourself in this world. And you can make your life all about you. But you will lose. To profit in Christ, we forfeit ourselves. We forfeit the profit that this world has to offer. There is nothing this world has to offer that's worth eternity, I promise you. To live without Jesus' shame, or shame for Jesus, we're going to have to endure shame for the world. The reality is this, is that there's only two ways to go, two choices here. We will either offend the people in this world with the proclamation of the gospel and our belief in it, that Jesus is the Christ, he is the only way, or we will offend God. Do not lose yourself. Do not lose his promises. One last quote I'd like to share with you. J.C. Ryle writing says, All other losses are bearable, or but for a short time. 
but the loss of the soul is forever more. It is to lose God and Christ and heaven and glory and happiness to all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Let me just close with this question. What are you unwilling to, to let go of because you long for it more than you long for Christ? Are you unwilling to deny yourself, unwilling to take up your cross, unwilling to follow Jesus? Do not lose yourself. He is the Christ. He came to save you. The beauty of this is, is that even in this, if today you'll repent, regardless of whether you're Never have, if you've never believed before, if you will believe today, repent of your sin, turn from those things to follow him. Or if you've been following him for a long time and just realize that you are still worshiping idols, regardless of your circumstances, situation, in your repentance, his grace is sufficient. It's big enough, it's broad enough to cover even these things. Please, Do not lose yourself. Do not lose your soul. Gain it by denying this life to follow Christ and his life. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to live the life we've been called to live to to serve, to go, and even to suffer as you've called us to do. I know, I know, that, I know that in my own heart I, I feel tension. I know in my own heart I, 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 there's things I like and I appreciate. Comforts I don't want to give up. I know if they're here that, that they're probably in every heart in this room. Would you confront us with our own idolatry, confront us with our own, with our own uh, self-centeredness? Uh, show us the promise. Show us the hope of your grace that is, is found when we deny ourselves, when we take up our cross, when we follow you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week we come to this moment to respond and consider the word. Consider where the Spirit is speaking to us. And to to worship. So if you've never believed, obviously there's this moment now that you need to realize that without faith, there's no way to worship him. There's no way to step into this life in which we would pursue him. And so let me just ask you to believe. Believe in Jesus. He is the Christ of God. For those of you that have been longtime believers, you can stand and you can sing the songs and I would encourage you to and I would encourage you to come and remember the price paid for you, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of your Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And I would encourage you to, to give your offerings as, as, as you seek to see his kingdom established in the world. I would encourage you to pray and cry out to him in, in, in need because he is sufficient. His power is great. I would encourage you to worship in the, in, in the going. But I would encourage you specifically today to go being willing to suffer for his name, for his cause, specifically in the way that he suffered. That, brothers and sisters, that will make the songs more precious, the gifts easier to let go of, and the remembrance that, that our suffering is made fruitful, that our difficulties are not meaningless, the remembrance of, of, of our Christ, it would be so much more full, so, so, much, more, so, so much more purposeful. And so as we would come to the table, that even in that, what he did for us, that's something to celebrate. That's something to live for. And the more we die to ourselves and live to him, the more meaningful, the more precious, the more we long for more of him. Let's worship.